so we're going to be in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 2, I mean 1 through 12, if you'd like to follow along. I'm reading from the ESV version. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. On which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you as your church, Father, giving you all praise and glory. Lord, we pray for uh, what scripture has for us today that we might uh, meditate on it and incorporate it in our lives and just live your scripture, Father, and being obedient to you. Lord, we ask for uh, your anointing on Mark as he teaches this morning. Just fill him with your Holy Spirit that uh, we might hear what you have for us. We pray for open ears and open minds and an open heart, Father. And also, Father, we raise up our Sunday school to you and all the children attending. We ask your blessing over that and your anointing on the teachers. We just thank you for all the people that you give us to minister to our children. And so, Lord, we just pray all these things to your precious son, Jesus. Amen. All right, kids, you're out of here. morning. So this morning, as we continue our, our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we will learn that, like in the previous sections, Jesus continues to contrast the hypocritical righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees with the true righteousness of God. So let's take a minute and pray. Father God, I pray that as we go through this passage this morning, that uh, you would teach us from your word that you would convict us of the times that we are self-righteous and that you would help us, God, to lean on the righteousness of Christ. It is only there that we can receive strength and grace and mercy and salvation. So, Lord, we thank you for this time. We present it to you for your glory 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So scripture is intended to be used as a mirror. We should look deeply into it and see ourselves as we really are and then work to make the changes that God desires in us. But here's the thing. All too often we use scripture as a microscope to examine others. We see our own righteousness and we think that we're good. We like to live as if we were umpires in the game of life. We want to call the strikes and the balls for everyone else, but never to call them on ourselves. The truth of the matter is simply this. Our righteousness is much more like the scribes and the Pharisees than it is like God's. And so do me a favor this morning. Put away your microscope and get out your mirror. Jesus has some important words for us today. So let's start with verse 1. Matthew 7, verse 1 says, Judge not that you not be judged. This is perhaps one of the most misunderstood verses in all of Scripture, and it is certainly up there in the misquoted verses as well. If we're living in a day that values tolerance above almost everything else, Originally, tolerance meant that you and I could disagree and we could still get along. We could talk about our differences, and if we didn't come to an understanding, we could agree to disagree and part friends or at least remain civil on the matter. Alas, that's no longer the definition of tolerance in our society. Tolerance today means something, in diff something else entirely. It means that not only must I tolerate your misbehavior, I'm not allowed to talk to you about it. In fact, I'm required to support it. Increasingly, I'm required to celebrate it with you. The original definition is valuable to a healthy society. Today's definition is simply evil. Judge not that you not be judged. This teaching of Jesus is widely misunderstood, and it is most often reduced to, hey, don't judge me, or who are you to judge me? This is a clear misapplication of Jesus' teaching. In fact, it's the exact, exact, exact opposite excuse me, of what he's teaching. And here's where you're going to need your mirrors. Jesus is not telling others not to judge us. He's telling us not to judge others. What others do is not our primary concern. Rather, what we do is our primary concern. And because verse 1 is almost exclusively quoted by itself, we miss the real lesson here. Jesus isn't saying never judge. He's saying be careful how you judge you see, our biggest problem is not how we judge others, or excuse me, not how others judge us. Our biggest problem is how we judge others. Verse 2 says, For the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, I don't know about you, 
but when I read passages in Scripture like this, I hear the lost in space robot in my mind. Do you guys remember the lost in space robot? Danger, Will Robinson! The pages become mirrors as I read them, and what I see looking back at me is my own reflection. And it's often not a pretty sight. So let me paraphrase these first two verses for you. Jesus is saying, caution, judge at your own risk. Jesus is teaching us that God will judge us with the same type of judgment we use to judge those around us. He says, if we assume the role of final judge, we are implying that we are qualified to judge. We act as if we know and understand all the facts, all the circumstances, and all the motives involved in the person we're judging. Therefore, when we assert our right to judge, we will be judged by the same standard of knowledge and wisdom we claim is ours. A story is told about two men who once conspired together to rob a jewelry store. One was a lawyer, and the other was a high school dropout. After being arrested, convicted, and sentenced, the lawyer received a 10-year prison sentence. The dropout, though, received three years. The attorney for the lawyer protested to the harsher judgment compared to the high school dropout. But the judge insisted that the lawyer was under a greater responsibility to be an example of the law because he understood the law. In the same manner, believers are under a greater responsibility to be living examples of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus says, judge not, he's not really issuing a prohibition on judging others. He's issuing a serious warning to take great care in how we judge others. And we can be sure of this because Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 7, 3 through 5, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here's your takeaway from this part so far. How we judge others says far more about us than how we are judged by others. How we judge others says far more about us than what others have to say about us when they judge us. The word in this passage translated as speck is karphos. It's actually not a tiny piece of dust, but rather a stalk or a twig or perhaps even a splinter. It's not an insignificant thing to have in your eye. It's large and it's obvious. Jesus' comparison here is not between a tiny sin and a big one, but rather it's between a sin that is large and a sin that is gigantic. The primary point is that the sin of the critic is greater than the sin of the person he is criticizing. James applies this same lesson to teachers. In James 3.1, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We who judge 
will be judged by the same judgment that we use towards others. We are especially guilty when we teach or judge if we do not practice our teaching and judging towards ourselves. Romans 2, 1 through 2 says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judge of God, right, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So throughout this passage and in this section as well, the sin Jesus is describing is the sin of self-righteousness. The same sin he repeatedly condemns in the scribes and the Pharisees. And by definition, self-righteousness is a sin of blindness because it looks directly at its own sin and still imagines that it sees only good. The nature of self-righteousness is to justify self and condemn others. It's the worst of sins because it is grounded in unbelief. It trusts in self rather than God. It trusts in self to determine right and wrong and to decide who is doing right and who is doing wrong. A self-righteous person considers himself both lawgiver and judge, all the while knowing that these are attributes of God and God alone. When Jesus says, do you not notice the log in your own eye? This is what he's saying. Will you please sit up and think about your own sin? Until you've done that, how can you confront a brother about his? Now, don't be fooled here. I'm not saying that it's wrong to lovingly help your brother remove a harmful speck from his eye. But it is wrong to self-righteously point out a speck in our brother's eye when we ignore as if it were no big deal the ridiculous log that's sticking out of our own. So it's as if Jesus is placing a big yellow caution sign over the heads of other people. And that sign is meant to give us serious pause so that we examine ourselves before saying anything. Our fallen nature is profoundly selfish and proud and often hypocritical. We judge ourselves leniently and others severely. We are quick to strain gnats and swallow camels, quick to take tweezers to another's eye when we literally need a forklift for our own. It is better to judge not than to judge like this, since we will be judged in the same way we judge others. Now, if you haven't figured this out yet, Jesus takes judgment very seriously. He is the righteous judge who is full of grace and truth. And he does not judge by appearances like we often do, but he judges with right judgment. John 7, 24 says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Every judgment that Jesus pronounces issues directly from his loving nature because he is love. 1 John 4, 8 says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
Therefore, when we judge, and it is not possible to live and never judge, by the way. We have to determine what's right and wrong. We have to determine good doctrine from false doctrine. We have to determine when a person is sinning and when a person is not sinning. And we have to determine when we're sinning and when we're not sinning. So it's not possible to live and not judge. But when we judge, we must take great care that our judgment, like Christ, is always charitable. So what does this look like? Here's some suggestions. And if you're taking notes, you might want to write these five points down. So what does charitable judgment look like? First of all, it's important that we be quick to believe innocence. When we judge, we must be slow to pronounce guilt when evidence is scarce or hearsay or unclear. This runs against our very fallen nature, but also it runs against our media-saturated culture that encourages hair-trigger judgments. We are wise to practice a method given to us by our Constitution. In this country, when a person is accused of a legal offense, but the evidence against him is questionable, our system demands we presume his innocence until enough evidence can demonstrate his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Beyond a reasonable doubt is a good standard for us to use. Such demonstration, the demonstration of evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, is typically not quick and it's not easy. So when you are uh, feeling like you need to judge another person, first of all, be quick to believe in their innocence. A good example from this time, from our current culture, was the Covington boys that were at the uh, Washington demonstration, and the video showed a Native American and a young high school guy with a MAGA hat, and he was just smiling and laughing at what the guy was saying. Now, that clip we found out later was staged, and that wasn't at all what actually happened, but as soon as it was released, social media, including many prominent Christians, condemned this young man. And some of those Christians apologized when when the rest of the videos were released, but many of them did not. Be quick to believe a person's innocence. Number two, be thorough before pronouncing guilt. History has taught us that appearances can be deceiving, and reasonable people have conscious and unconscious biases that often shape how they interpret evidence. So our courts require a demanding process of evaluating evidence to ensure that deceptive appearances and biases do not distort the truth. This process requires diligence, patience, and restraint. And while reasonable doubt regarding a person's guilt persists, we are bound to believe, at least in a legal sense, and I think biblically as well, we are bound to believe the best about that person. We give him the benefit of the doubt. 1 Corinthians 13.7 says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. When Paul wrote, love believes all things, he was talking about this kind of charitable judgment. 
Christians are called to believe the best about each other until sufficient evidence confirms beyond a reasonable doubt that a transgression has occurred. The third thing, in order to exercise charitable judgment, is that we must always aim for restoration. 2 Corinthians 13.11 says, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. When evidence does confirm that a transgression has occurred, a second way that we take great care how we judge is to aim for restoration. So if we are the victim of harm, our goal in confronting someone caught in a sin, or if necessary, initiating the process of church discipline, is to gain back our brother or sister. Our goal is not punitive. It is redemptive. Restoration is always the goal. Restoration is the goal in confrontation. It is the goal in forgiveness. It is the goal in church discipline. Restoration must always be at the heart of your confrontation. We must remain, as we are taught in Ephesians 4.32, kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave us. Even if the guilty person is unrepentant and fellowship must be severed, the purpose remains redemptive for the offender. 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So restoration is critical to God, and it is critical to the way that we judge others. <clears throat> and I, I want to note here that restoration is not always possible. When it is determined that the person stubbornly remains unrepentant or harmful, they must be separated from you or sometimes from the body. The best place to keep a dangerous dog is behind a strong fence. But we must start from a position of forgiveness and a goal of restoration. The fourth way to keep our judgment charitable is to keep quiet if possible. Here's where you need your mirrors again. If we're not personally involved in the problem, or perhaps we are distant observers, we can still aim for the person's restoration by not saying anything. A wise rule of thumb is this. The greater our distance from the problem, the greater our ignorance. An ignorant commentary about a person or a situation is never helpful and is usually nothing more than gossip or slander, which Jesus calls evil. Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. It's interesting to me that slander and gossip are included in a list along with murder, adultery, and sexual immorality. Do you think Jesus cares about these things? <clears throat> we must remember how faulty our perceptions are and how bias and hurt feelings distort our judgment. We often think we understand what's going on when in reality we do not. 
from a distance, love covering a multitude of sins looks like not repeating a matter. Proverbs 17.9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. You know, we look and we see something happening or someone doing something and we say, I need to stop that person. But it's a distant situation and we have no idea what's actually going on, so we stick our nose where it doesn't belong and the matter becomes worse. Don't do that. Pick up your mirror and look at it before you do something like that. Our goal in confronting a believer caught in sin is to gain back our brother or sister. No other motive will please God. And finally, in order to keep our judgment charitable, we must learn to judge with right judgment. How we judge others says far more about us than how others judge us. This is why God will judge us in the manner we judge others, not in the manner they judge us. Therefore, we must judge as Jesus teaches in John 7, 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And right judgment is simply this. Right judgment is charitably quick to believe innocence. It is charitably slow to pronounce guilt. It is charitably redemptive when it must be and charitably silent, if at all possible. The goal is that we turn from hypocrisy and we learn to build others up rather than tear them down. Tear them down is what we're good at, isn't it? Building up is a whole different story. When we have clearly and prayerfully done these things, right judgment occasionally requires charitable separation of the sinner. We will touch more on this when we get to Matthew 18. To summarize this whole section, I think we can simply say, when in doubt, judge not. Next, Jesus makes a statement in this section that comes like a crash of thunder after the previous verses, and it makes it clear that right judgment is required of the believer. Matthew 7, 6 says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. In biblical times, dogs were not often kept as household pets. It's not, it wasn't anything like it is today. People didn't have dogs and take them in their shopping carts in the store and sit them under the table in a restaurant and on the pews in church. Sometimes dogs were used to herd sheep, but mostly dogs of that day tended to be wild, dirty mutts that were scavengers. Like the coyotes of our time, they were dirty, snarling, and often vicious and diseased. They were dangerous, feared, and despised. It would have been unthinkable for a Jew to feed any dog a piece of holy meat that had been used as a sacrifice in the temple. You notice that verse says, don't feed dogs that which is holy. Some parts of those offerings were burned up, some parts were eaten by the priests performing the sacrifice, but the part left on the altar, the part that was left over, was devoted exclusively to God. And because of that, it was holy in a very special way. No man was allowed to eat it, much less throw it to some pack of dogs. 
to do so would have been an extreme act of desecration. Swine were considered by the Jews to be the most unclean animal of all. For a priest to eat pork was an absolute abomination, and even to touch a pig was to make oneself unclean. Most of the swine encountered by Jews were like dogs. They lived on the edge of town in the wild. They foraged in the, in the wilderness for themselves, and they were greedy, filthy, and vicious. And if you came between them and their food, like the wild boars today, they were likely to turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus' point here is that sometimes judgment is required. He says that certain truths and blessings of our faith are not to be shared with people who are totally antagonistic to the things of God. Such people are spiritual dogs and pigs. They have no appreciation for that which is righteous and holy, and they will take the holy things of God as foolishness and as an insult. If you want to see an example of this, all you have to do is get on social media. Open up a Twitter account if you don't have one already, and you will see people trampling on the word of God. You will see them making fun and insulting believers and the holiness of God. But there will be times when the gospel we present is absolutely rejected and even ridiculed. We may have to make the judgment to turn away and speak no more, deciding to shake the dust off our feet and spend our time ministering to someone or someplace else. When people not only reject Jesus, but they ridicule and mock him, we are not to waste his truth in an attempt to win them. This is one of the hard sayings of Jesus. Because it is from him we must obey. Prayerfully, and I mean prayerfully, we must seek his will and we must refuse in these situations to become angry or self-righteous. And friends, I have to confess to you that I struggle with this every single day. Every time I see a woman shouting her abortion or celebrating homosexuality and transgenderism, every time I read that a school district is foisting these things on kindergartners, I become angry, and anger often leads me to self-righteousness. Instead, we must leave these people not with judgment, but with sadness and disappointment because they refuse to see the truth of the gospel message. We need to get to a place where their disobedience becomes heartbreaking to us. And when it is heartbreaking to us, we can legitimately say, I'm turning away and I'm moving on. To avoid wrongful judging and to accomplish godly discernment is to be seen as a citizen of God's kingdom. There's a meme going around. Does everybody here know what a meme is? It's uh, actually six frames with two people from the office. And <clears throat> the guy from the office is in the first frame, and it says over the top, it says God. And he says, I'm going to give you a spiritual gift. And the girl from the office in the next frame says, ooh, ooh, 
tongues, give me tongues. And the next picture has God, and he's just looking with a look on his face like. The next picture, she says, oh, give me healing. Give me the gift of healing. And the next picture, God is sitting there again, just kind of with a disgusted look on his face. And the next frame, she says, oh, it's prophecy. It's the gift of prophecy. And the last frame of God, he says, it's discernment. And the last picture of her, she's looking up like, hmm. Let me tell you, friends, today we would all do well to be constantly praying for discernment. We need discernment in this world more than we need just about anything else. Pray for discernment. Verses 7 through 8 says this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. Verses 7 and 8 are also among the most misquoted verses in Scripture, or at least they're most commonly ripped out of context. It's not a blanket prayer to ask God for what you want. It's not a a prayer of salvation. We know this because This sermon from chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7 is preached to the believers. It's preached to Jesus' disciples. Starting right in the beginning, Matthew 5, 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he opened his mouth to speak. So, yeah, there were certainly unbelievers in the crowd, and maybe there were a lot of them. But the message is not primarily for the unbelievers. The message is for his disciples. From chapter 5 through chapter 7, we repeatedly see the terms your father and brothers. In verse 11, it is your father who gives good things to those who ask. Unbelievers are not God's children. They are God's creation. But they have not been adopted into his family nor are unbelievers our brothers and sisters. And Jesus is not saying here that believers get whatever they ask. For James 4.3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What Jesus is saying in this section is that the more time a believer spends in communion with God, the more he or she will know what to ask for in accordance with God's will. Prayer in and of itself does not produce holiness in a believer's life, but it does show a dependence on God for needs that can be met in, other, in no other ways, and it leads to holiness in a person's life. God is always pleased with such displays of faith. It is only faith in what God can do and what Christ has done that brings about true sanctification, not an artificial self-righteousness. Hebrews 11.6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And Jesus goes on to say in this verse, Seek and you will find. Uh, and what is it that believers ought to be seeking? What is it? 
that we should be looking for? Well, the scripture tells us it is God himself. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. That's uh, Psalm 27, 8. The, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Psalm 34, 10. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Psalm 105, 4. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Psalm 119, 2. God is not hiding from his children. His heart's desire is for us to be persistently and passionately looking for him all around us. And when we do, he promises that he will be found. Proverbs 8, 17 says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Seeking is a matter of paying attention with an engaged mind and a hopeful awareness. Jesus then said, knock and the door will be open to you. Here, Jesus is using a metaphor for the action that the desire produces. If a person needs something from someone behind a door, the most natural thing is to knock and keep knocking and knock harder if you have to until that person comes and provides what it is that you need. In the same way, a believer should pray in faith for God's provision and be persistent in prayer. Luke 18.1 says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Ask, seek, knock. Do you see the progression there? It's each word is building upon the last. Ask, seek, knock. There's three different senses required in this progression. Asking is verbal. Christians are to ask, are to use their mouths and petition God for their needs and desires. And believers are to seek with their minds. This is more than just asking. It is a setting of priorities and a focusing of the heart. To knock involves physical movement, one in which a believer takes action. Although asking and seeking are of great importance, they're not complete without knocking. In 1 John 3, 18, we are told, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. There is a progression seen in this passage, and that progression is important. In the same way, it's good to pray and seek God, but if one does not also act in ways that are pleasing to God, it's really not helpful. It's no accident that Jesus said believers should love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. What Jesus is saying in this passage is keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Not for salvation, not for the things we want, not for a better job, but for humility. Let's look back at what he's been talking about. For love of God and for others for strength and for knowledge, and to purge self-righteousness from our souls. The commands are followed by a promise. Everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, 
and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. God delights in the prayer of faith and his promises to give us what we need. We need what Jesus has been telling us about in the Sermon on the Mount, his righteousness. We cannot achieve that without asking, seeking, and knocking. So far in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has given us the standards related to self, morality, religion, and to money and possessions. In these last verses, he gives us the standard of human relationships, love. Matthew 7, 9 through 11 says this. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? To love others in the way that God wants us to love requires that we do not self-righteously or carelessly condemn others. When we live with that attitude, self-righteousness and condemnation, it is impossible for us to love others. Not to be unjustly critical is not the same thing as loving. But losing that attitude is absolutely necessary before true love can exist. True love is so much more than not being critical or not being self-righteous. True love is an action. The absence of ill will or hatred is not the same as true love. Again, we see here, as we have throughout this whole Sermon on the Mount, the contrast between spiritual and earthly behavior. Jesus asked, what human father would give his hungry son a snake or a rock to eat? The answer is none. So if human parents care for their children, how much more will God care for us? How much more will he provide for us? As we ask God for wisdom and humility, as we seek his will for our lives and knowledge of how to live with others, as we knock in hopeful expectation, he will teach, reveal, and provide. Verse 12 sums up this section of the sermon so far. It says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The love of God, perfect and holy, is best seen in his followers when they treat others as they themselves wish to be treated. Matthew 22, 37 through 40 says this, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There is no ability in an unbeliever to love in this way. They simply do not have the power of the Spirit to consistently love like this. For sure, unbelievers can do good things. Yep, they can be supportive, they can be helpful. But there is no ability for them to consistently love like this without the Spirit of God. The golden rule, you will notice, is expressing a love that is an active love. It does things. 
It doesn't just not do things. It doesn't say, don't be mean, don't judge people. It says, do for them what you want them to do to you. And that doing, by the way, is not for their benefit. It's for the person who's receiving the action. It's for the benefit of them. The golden rule sums up the law and the prophets because it is how we live the greatest commandment, to love God with our hearts, minds, strength, and soul, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. There's lots of ancient writings that talk about something similar to the golden rule, but all of them are negative. All of them say, don't abuse your neighbor, don't steal, don't rob. But the golden rule says, do. It says, go out and treat your brothers the same way you want them to treat you, even if you never get anything in return. This is the example, the expression of true agape love. Man's basic problem is preoccupation with self. And by the way, every sin results from this preoccupation. We sin because we are totally selfish, totally devoted to ourselves, rather than to God and to others. Selfless love does not serve to, present, to prevent its own harm or provide for its own welfare. It serves just for the sake of the one being served and serves in the way that it wants to be served, whether it ever receives such service or not. This is the divine level of, of love, agape love that originates only from God. And only God's children can consistently achieve this, and only through the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we close here today, let me encourage you with these final thoughts. Judge like Jesus, or don't judge at all. Love your brothers, and take great care in correcting them, but don't avoid confrontation or correction when necessary. Treasure and protect the truth of Scripture like the precious jewels that it is, and don't neglect the study of it. Ask, seek, and knock in your desire to know God more and more and more fully. And finally, always keep love as the motivation for whatever you do. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this particular section of your word and the many things that it points out to me that need to change in my own life. And I pray, God, that, uh, that as we leave here today, that we would begin to consistently use the scripture as a mirror, that you would continue to expose to us those things in our lives that are displeasing to you, and then give us the strength to change them. We are grateful that your mercy covers these things, and we ask that you forgive us for them. God, as we leave here, just be with us, bless us, keep us, and help us to glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.